Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My mom had this thing that when, she, when 6 o'clock rolled around, that she was no longer on duty, and that was her time. And so I was told that a number of times as a child and I I did not have a close connection with her because when six o'clock started she started drinking and she would become drunk fairly quickly and so I spent a lot of nights watching television alone actually. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand What makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
Hey beautiful souls, real connection. It's the one thing that I think can make us or break us as humans. We can be super successful, have all the money in the world, an amazing career, but if we don't have real human connection in our lives, then we can be deeply lonely, deeply alone and not coping. That saying about being in a room full of people and feeling desperately lonely, it says it all. We can be surrounded by many people in our lives, but if we're not really seen, if we're not really heard, then we're nowhere. We're just going through the motions of life. And when you're a little kid and the people around you, for whatever reason, don't connect with you, that lack of connection will change everything. The way you think, the way you see yourself and the way you interact with the world. I'm chatting with Leslie on the podcast this week. Leslie's parents and her older brother were alcoholic and Leslie spent a lot of her time feeling alone, abandoned even. When six o'clock rolled around, Leslie's mum declared she was off duty and would begin drinking and would be drunk fairly quickly and Leslie would spend the evenings alone. What does it mean for a kid who has that connection missing in her life? Leslie is such a vibrant human. She is on a mission to help women be the best version of themselves and she has a lot of wisdom to share with us. Please join me in hearing Leslie's story. Tell me a little bit about yourself when you were around five or six years old. What do you remember of that time or the feelings that you have associated with being that age? Hmm. Yeah, around five or six, which is a few years ago now, <laughs> I was, I played a lot alone. It, it would have been, I was just starting kindergarten, so, or maybe a bit before that. And so I, I remember being alone quite a bit and playing with uh, toys. Um, my mother would be busy doing housework. My dad would be off at work. And I, I did have a brother. I do have a brother who is older, uh, a lot older than I am. So I was kind of like a, an only child because my brother was 14 years older than me. So he was at a different stage of his development. But yeah, I do remember feeling lonely at that age. I was really, I was excited to get to school but I was also like really afraid of it because I had spent so much time alone being a lone wolf but yeah that that's what comes up for me around that age yeah so did you have a connection did you feel like you had a connection with your mum at that age when you were spending so much time with her no I later on yes at that age I would say no because my mom was very busy doing all the things of being a housewife uh, the cooking, the cleaning. There wasn't a whole lot of time. She wasn't uh, very emotionally available to, at all. And, and also around that time, or maybe a little bit later, my mother, uh, my mother, my father, and my brother actually all struggled with alcoholism, unfortunately. And so my mom had this thing that when, she, when six o'clock rolled around, that she was no longer on duty, and that was her time. And so I was told that a number of times as a child and I was, I, I did not have a close connection with her because when six o'clock started, she started drinking and she would become drunk fairly quickly. And so I spent a lot of nights watching television alone, actually. Wow. 
And so how do you think the, the alcoholism started? Was this something that was happening, do you think, in your parents' marriage before they had kids or was it something that came from their own families and childhoods? Yeah, I mean, in the research I've done later, subsequently on alcoholism, it, it can go back seven generations. And so there definitely was alcoholism on my dad's side. My On my mom's side, one of the things that, I'm at a disadvantage of is three of my four grandparents died when my parents were under 10 years old. And so we never knew them. They were, they immigrated from Britain to Canada and, and then they, you know, they, they died so young. And so I do know that my maternal grandfather, his family ran bars in Staffordshire, England. So my guess is there probably was alcoholism there because all three of the siblings, my mother and her two siblings were alcoholics as well. So there probably was a pervasiveness in the family. On my dad's side, I know that an uncle of his, a great uncle of mine was an alcoholic, but I don't know about any, any other members of the family. Okay. Wow. So it really does run through families, doesn't it? So what about your relationship with your dad when you were a small child? Obviously he was working a lot. Did you have a relationship with him or did you feel connected with him? I did actually. Of my two parents, I felt the closest to my father. I think personality wise, him and I had a similar, we were temperamentally the same or similar. My dad was very outgoing. He was very curious. He was full of wonder of the world. And so I very much gravitated towards him. And it was a lot of fun when I would hang out with my father. So uh, emotionally, not so much. He wasn't uh, warm and fuzzy, but he was a very outgoing, friendly, personable person. And so I I felt more connected to him and I did spend more time with him. I actually worked with him in his business. He had a delivery route in the 60s in Toronto. And so I would go with him whenever I wasn't in school or on holiday. And so I, I spent a lot of time with him uh, from a young age, like five or six, up until I was 14 or 15 years old. That's nice to have that connection, isn't it? When you're a little child and your parents are both drinking of an evening, you're spending time feeling lonely and disconnected. How does that affect you when you start school? Are you ready to get in there and make friends or did you feel you were a bit too shy that you hadn't had a lot of connection with other people? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it shy. I think it was just I didn't know how to really connect with people. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you get accustomed to interacting with what you know, right, within your family circle. And you don't even really know that that's dysfunctional. I think at some point you hopefully will realize if it is dysfunctional, but I didn't have strong connections at school. The other thing that was happening was even though my dad was a successful businessman, that didn't translate down to me. So I would routinely go to school uh, wearing clothing that did not fit me. I'm almost ashamed to say this, but I wasn't bathed as a child very often. So I don't know. I'm trying to fit in and make friends and I'm wearing clothing that's too small. I've got holes in my shoes. And my dad literally made thousands of dollars a week in the 60s. And yet for some reason I was not dressed properly. So 
there was that disconnect as well that it was kind of weird, but I felt, I learned, I was rejected. You know, I was rejected at home. I was rejected at school. I just never really fit in. And so, so the result of that neglect and feeling rejected was becoming a people pleaser because I wanted to be loved and accepted. Yeah. It's really neglect on your mother's part, isn't it? She's supposed to be looking after you and doing the basic hygienic things, buying you some new clothes. It's really quite neglectful that she wasn't yes. doing any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, well, I, I believe there's acts of commission and I think there's acts of omission. So where was my dad in that as well? Now, uh, my parent, the stories that I heard, so, you know, they came over, my parents are first generation Canadian. My three of the four grandparents die and it's a depression. So they were significantly older and by the time I was born. And so I heard the stories of my father having holes in his shoes because they were living in poverty. But in the 60s, when my dad was doing so well financially, it was really inexcusable that I was going to school with holes in my shoes. So, and, and my dad could have taken maybe more of an interest or maybe had been more observant. So I don't think it was just my mother. I think, right. you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was both of them as parents of me. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess we, through the generations, if, you, if you're coming from a poor family and everyone has holes in their shoes, it's almost as if that's your mindset. And sometimes you don't, you might have the money there, but you don't think I'm going to spend that money or I need to hold that money back or it's, it's kind of like a cycle, isn't it? And it's very entrenched in us sometimes that we just don't spend the money because it's part of what we've done. Yeah, uh, perhaps there was some of that as well. I, I don't know. But yeah, but I do think there is a scarcity mindset that can come from having that type of experience or you know, if you've experienced being hungry, I know both of my parents had experienced hunger, you know, being raised. Uh, I remember my mother telling me that they got an orange for Christmas if they were lucky. Yes. My parents were the same in England. They got an apple and an orange wrapped up in a stocking. That was what they used to get for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I can't imagine the kind of fear, you know, having that experience growing up, it can definitely skew. And yet, on a positive side, there was a lot of fun times in my household. You know, they were very carefree and throwing parties. And I mean, it wasn't, wasn't all terrible, but definitely, you know, definitely a little skewed on taking care of their child. Yes. Do you think that your brother had a different experience to you growing up? I, yeah, I think he did. I think my parents were younger. They, they weren't as entrenched, I think, in the, in the alcoholism. I will say my dad, the closeness I felt with my father, uh, he had spent 10 years not drinking. And so I think that afforded me the close relationship that I did have with him. He later relapsed. But I do think that my brother had a different experience. He was, he was more doted on, I think, than I was. Yes. But then you're saying that he ended up being an alcoholic himself. Yes. So that was just from being around people drinking the whole time. Yeah. And, and the smoking as well. I mean, when I was coming up, thank goodness that the messaging, I don't know what it's like where you live, but when I grew up, it was 
everybody smoked, everybody drank, it seemed like. Only now, like in my lifetime, my daughter smokes, but my son never smoked. My kids barely drink. So it's just a different mindset now in this generation that we talk about that. And even just to talk about alcoholism before it was just kind of swept under the rug, I think, you know? Yes. What about by the time you get to 10 years old, what life's like for you then? Because there was an accident that happened around that time. Yes. Yeah. My dad, my dad had started drinking. He was drunk. And so we had have Dominion Day in, in Canada. Uh, it's kind of like Memorial Day in the States and the firecrackers and the sparklers and, and all that. And so my dad was drinking, my brother was drinking, I, I'm assuming my mother was drinking. We go out in the backyard and at the time my father owned a, a gun store and he was actually a weapons uh, reloading expert. He uh, invented a bullet caliber. So he, he was very, very knowledgeable. A lot of people would come to him for advice on reloading uh, ammunition like so he was he was very very knowledgeable in that and owned a gun store and so we go through the the the, the fireworks on this particular evening and my dad instructs my brother to go get the gunpowder that we're going to have fun with the gunpowder and mm -hmm. here I am 10 years old and he wasn't thinking straight and he asked me to light the gunpowder that was in a pile and I lean over with my sparkler thinking, oh, you know, haha, you know, this is going to be fun. And the gunpowder blows up in my face. And I was looking at it coming towards me, the, the flame coming towards me. And just within a second, I closed my eyes. I got second degree burns all over my face. I lost my eyelashes for a period of time, my eyebrows, my hair. I had a burn on the top of my, my head. I wasn't able to go to school because of that for the remainder of the year. I was devastated. And, and the funny, the funny, the ironic part of that was that day, I had looked in the mirror almost like for the first time and thought that I was pretty. And then that night I had the gunpowder blow up in my face and I was not taken to the doctor. It was, it was pretty bad. So that was a devastating, traumatic experience that I think really impacted me for a long time afterwards, you know, not feeling pretty. Yeah. So they didn't take you for medical assistance? No. My goodness. Because... I don't know. I, I don't know. I was told that they had called the doctor and that the doctor, supposedly the doctor said, don't bother bringing her into the, the hospital. My guess is, is probably children's services would have taken me away from them. <laughs> right. You know, that might have been a consideration, but I, I never did find out why. When you're 10, you know, you don't think to ask. No, <laughs> you know. no not at all. Not at all. So yeah. how does that affect you then, do you think? Was there an element of depression there, do you think, after that? Or did it affect you in some way? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think throughout my life, you just kind of deal with whatever's in front of you. And I think at that time, there was no counseling really at that time. You just kind of sucked it up. That saying, you know, stiff upper lip kind of thing we never really talked about emotions. You just kind of moved on. So in later years, based on 
maybe not just that experience, but my childhood experience. I've since gotten therapy and, and been able to unpack some of the trauma, a lot of the trauma that I've been through. So I've done a lot of healing work with myself to move past the anger and the fear and the frustration and, and just limiting beliefs. As you realize and are able to become aware and step into that and process it once you're feeling safe enough to do that. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it was that. I, I do know as a teenager, I would have, particularly around my period, I would have a lot of highs and lows emotionally, a lot of despair feelings, never suicidal, but just hopeless, helpless kind of feelings. And I, I don't know if that was because of a hormonal feeling at that point, or if it was stemming from childhood stuff. So when you're around that 10, 12 years of age, do you have any other people like adults that are on your side or that you can talk to about anything when you feel that you don't really have your parents supporting you as much? Uh, no, no, uh, there, there was family. Uh, my, my dad, my dad had in later years, I re I connected with my dad's family my dad, I think because of his, what he was going through with his addiction, with alcoholism, he didn't, he didn't want to spend time with his family at all. I think he had some unprocessed anger towards his mother that he never really dealt with. And so I never really knew my dad's side of the family. My mom's side of the family, like I said, there was a lot of drinking. So there was, nobody was paying attention, really. And I, I also think too, it was kind of like, well, that's, everyone's got their own problems. So everyone just deals with their own stuff. They don't really get involved with their family members, you know? Yes. So when you get to being 14, 15, what's life like in your family by that stage? <laughs> well, yeah. So my dad, when I was 14, my dad yanked me and the family out of Toronto because he wanted to live in the country and bought a dilapidated house in this small town and I lived there with them for a couple of years. And my, my mother was just absolutely miserable. And I actually, I've been labeled as the one who broke my parents up at 14 because I just got tired of hearing her complaints and she would be drinking and she would look at my dad with this angry look and say, you know, you SOB, I know what you did to me in 1954. And I'm like, I was born in 61. I'm like, Ma, like, and this was in 74, 75. I'm like, Ma, this is like 20 years ago. Like, if you if you're not happy with with dad, then why don't you leave? And and I interrupted her her script, you know, like her autopilot. And she looked at me and it was like this shapeshifter kind of look. And do you know what? She packed a bag and the next day she left. Wow. It was like I had freed her. I had given her permission to leave. And, you know, that was the beginning of the rest of her life. And her family, I was like the devil because I, how dare I tell my mother to leave? <laughs> I mean, they had been married for 35 years and she was miserable. Yes. Sounds like a sensible suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I was the only sober one in the family, so somebody <laughs> had to say it, right? And what did her life become when she left? Did she improve her life? Yes, yeah. She eventually stopped drinking and she was happy. And, and I, I eventually joined her because then I got to see more, more closely my dad and his idiosyncrasies. And I was just like, I, jo I joined her. I didn't even want to be in the country anyway. So I went back to Toronto and stayed with her. Yeah, like her life changed. I mean, she started working and she just created a life for herself and very, very quiet. You know, she was, she was very introverted and but she got to spend more time with her family. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was good. It was good for her. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess back then people didn't think so much about divorcing, did they? It wasn't something people just said, like probably people do now. It, okay, well, it's not working. Back then, I think people just thought they had to stay forever and just be miserable. So gosh, it sounds like you did her a massive favor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Were you going to high school when you were back in Toronto? I did. Yeah. I had gone to high school for a couple of years in the country. And then I actually didn't finish high school. My mom, when I moved back to the city, my mother, I mean, we were pretty broke. She was starting over. She wasn't educated. My dad had a grade six education. My mom had a grade 10 education. So they took whatever jobs. Well, my dad was always self-employed, but they took, my mom took whatever job she could get. And it wasn't a very well paid job. So, but she lived in a neighborhood that was very wealthy. And I went to the school and they were talking about their trips to Europe over the summer. And here I was like trying to scrape money together to buy myself clothing and i just felt very i mean very uncomfortable so i then went back to my old school which was an hour each way on the train and the bus and i after a while it just i just broke down i just couldn't keep doing it so i quit three months before I graduated. Nobody was there to tell me, stop being stupid. You can do this, suck it up. <laughs> it's important to get a high school diploma. And I quit and started working full time. So I've been, I worked for my dad and from the time I was a young child and I've worked all the time. I mean, but I started working full time when I was 17. Oh, wow. So yeah. I laid, I later got my education. So fast forward, when I was 35, I got a GED here in the States. And then in my 40s, I got an associate degree, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree. And I'm, I'm hoping before I pass that I get a PhD. So uh, that is on my bucket list to, to complete. Wow, that's amazing that you went back and did all of that. That's fantastic. Congratulations on doing all of that because it's it's always harder, I think, to go back when you've got to work and you've got to study and it's a lot of work. So really, really awesome that you did that. You got married at 18, didn't you? I wasn't married at that age. I met my ex-husband at that age. I got pregnant shortly after that. So I had two children by the time I was 24. My, my children are four years apart. So I uh, got into my relationship and marriage very young. Yes. And how was that relationship? It was not good. I purposely said I would never marry an alcoholic and he ended up being an addict. And it was not a good marriage at all. It was very difficult. Yes. 
And I wonder how that happens when people are, they're definitely never going to marry the person that's the same as their parents. And then somehow you get drawn towards that, that same type of person, don't you? Yeah. I think we talk about, it's very common now, the law of attraction. But I think if, if we haven't worked through our own stuff, I think we inevitably attract It's almost like, in a way, I I always say, even when it's bad, it's always good. It's a gift when we go through challenges, even though I didn't always feel that way because some of the suffering has been excruciating. But I do think that we attract where we're at. I don't know if if it's a vibrational thing or I had not worked through the trauma of being raised by alcoholic parents and I inevitably attracted someone who was dysfunctional, like I was. I mean, I was dysfunctional. I, I didn't think I was, but I was wounded, uh, just like my ex was. And so we were very good codependents with each other <laughs> in a bad way. <laughs> so did you end up raising your kids by yourself for a while? Yes, for the most part, yeah. Even even when we were together, I the financial burden, it was a burden uh, at times. I had to make it happen, and I did. And over time, I, I left the marriage finally, got therapy, learned about codependency, understood what the cycle of abuse was. And yeah. And so, and the, the funny part was here, I was all those years, like just struggling to be able to pay rent and put food on the table. And, and then at one point I ended up investing in real estate and I ended up owning 17 rental units with a partner. So fast forward, right? Like going through the the challenges that I did, I think it if it doesn't break you, right, it de- definitely makes you stronger. And, and I, I also, I think for me, I, I think it gives me great empathy and compassion for other people. So I, I think there's positive things that can come from having a difficult circumstances presented to you. Yeah, for sure. What's your relationship now like with your dad? Parents have passed, unfortunately. My dad passed in 98. Um, My my mom passed in 2003. My mother was 40 when I was born. And so, and my dad was 43. So, so they've been gone for quite a while and we definitely worked through most of the stuff. There was, there were things that I had to just work through on my own that like, I remember saying to my mother, my mother was not drinking in her latter years, but the carnage, right? The carnage of the past, I was traumatized by my upbringing by her in part and my dad. And so when I started getting therapy and I wanted to talk about it, I remember saying to my mother, mom, you're, you're an alcoholic. And, and my mother was never an angry outburst kind of person, but my mother flew into a rage and stormed out of my house and said, I am not an alcoholic. Like she was in complete denial. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. even admit and that she was, she was a lush. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. was it was it not until you had therapy that you really saw her as an alcoholic? Yeah, I think so. I you know, I was in the midst of the situation with my ex-husband and I was talking to someone and they said, "I think you're an adult child of an alcoholic." And I'm like, "Huh? What?" And so I learned about ACOA and I started attending meetings and stuff there. But I didn't have a clue, you know, you just you you know that your parents drink, but you just don't know to label it necessarily. At that time, they didn't really talk about that stuff. ACOA, is that like an alcoholics group for relatives of alcoholics? Yes. 
It's called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And and what do they do there? What is it just sharing stories? What do they Yeah, do? it's it's kind of like a, it's a 12 step, but it's specific to the insanity <laughs> that you experience when you're raised by people that are drinkers. Yeah. What did you have to do with your parents? Did you have to forgive them at some point in your therapy? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I had a lot of shame at one point. So yeah, forgiveness. I, you know, would attend workshops and there would be exercises. I remember one that um, you had to pick one of your parents. And at that time, my parents were both living and, you know, pretend that you're one of your parents is on their deathbed and tell them how you really feel. And that was uh, quite a quite a moment to be able to verbalize, you know, you hold it all inside, right? And to be able to verbalize and say how you really feel. So yeah, and, and then further along, I was realizing that I had a lot of shame around, I, I just didn't feel proud of coming from the household that I did. And, and yet, it's kind of like you can focus on all the negative stuff and not really embrace the positive stuff. And so what I did, I actually did a therapy session with a counselor who helped me rewrite the script so that I didn't walk around feeling the shame and it was like a weight on me. And it just helped me to embrace the positive things that I got from both of my parents and, and then not let them off the hook for they made choices to live the lives that they did but to have a more realistic picture of the forgiveness, forgiving each of them for them not, for them neglecting me and, and being uh, very critical of me. I remember just a couple of years ago, I had buried a memory that uh, my father had been very super critical of me and it devastated me at the time to the point where I couldn't remember it until fast forward, you know, 40 years later, I finally remembered this uh, incident that happened that hurt me very badly and to the point where I couldn't even speak properly for years afterwards. And so when they come up, you process it, you acknowledge it for what it is, that my father was an asshole, pardon my French, you can bleep that out <laughs> if you want. <laughs> he uh, was very cruel with his words. And you don't say things like he did to a hormonal, insecure 14-year-old that worshiped the ground that he walked on. And, and then realize he did the, in some ways, he did the best he could. He, he, his dad died when he was five years old. Mom wasn't the warm and fuzzy type. She was in the depression with three kids in a new country. I think, I think too, like trying to understand it from their perspective at times has been helpful. My mom was, my mom was in an, an orange home in, in an orphanage as, as a young child and lost both of her parents. And I mean, uh, devastating experiences for them. And they didn't go to counseling, they drank to yeah. alleviate how they were feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, that really hit me in my heart there where you said the words that had come out of your dad's mouth and that you worship the ground that he walked on. It's such a, it's such an awful thing, isn't it? When parents say things to their kids and we look up to them and we adore who they are. And it's, it's just, yeah, just really hit me there. I just thought, oh my goodness, that's hard. And interesting that you say those words affected you so much. And yet 
you've obviously buried that memory for years and it's interesting how the brain can do that for us all of a sudden it comes out many many years later you know it's our protective mechanism isn't it but it was obviously very very important moment at that time when it actually happened it was and when i had the the, the memory uh, recall it was actually i was so grateful for that at that juncture I was actually preparing at that moment uh, when I had the, the recollection and was able to process it. I was actually preparing to deliver a workshop on emotional intelligence and, <laughs> and have this breakthrough for myself. And I was able to share that in a such a such a valuable way for the, the people that attended the workshop that yeah it was crazy good that yeah. it came up when it did yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that i was able to heal from it and make peace with it and then i was able to give that to the folks that i was working with at that time in that workshop so yes yeah and i also love that you rewrote the script I just love that idea because we do just have that same script that goes around and around and around and around and around, doesn't it, forever? And I yeah, um, yeah. think, wow, that's an awesome thing to do. And was that something that, how did that actually work? You sat down and you wrote it together with this therapist in a way that changed the way that you thought about the events of growing up because we shouldn't be feeling shame for what happened to us and of course we all do feel shame but it's not our shame it's it, it was the life that was put onto us we have the chance to change that for the next generation but it's very hard for us to do anything about it when we're the child so I love that that you sat down and changed that script yeah I don't remember the specifics of the rewriting I do know that it was under it wasn't hypnosis it was like a closed visualization exercise and and i've done subsequent ones with, with it's an nlp technique a neuro linguistic programming technique so with that one you want to go to the earliest memory of whatever the thing is that is traumatizing you or affecting you and in, in the NLP example, you think about, you're thinking about the situation. So, you know, say someone is, one of your parents is just unloading on you and screaming and yelling. And so you think of that and you can actually feel the sensations that come over your body when you're in that moment of the experience. And then this NLP technique has you play circus music and then you're replaying the script, the experience, you're replaying it. And then you're hearing and then you're kind of playing it back and forth. And so whatever the experience was, you know, whatever the trauma is, and then you, if there's a perpetrator, you put a clown's nose on the perpetrator and then you're da, 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 and you're listening to the, 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 the circus music. What happens is it breaks. It's kind of like an old record and it, it actually severs the connection that you have to the experience, the physiological memory in your body of the experience. And then once, once you do that a few times, literally takes five or 10 minutes at the most. And, and then you go back and like, okay, well, think of the memory now. And you're like, 
you're kind of laughing like you're you're associating instead of extreme pain and embarrassment or shame or whatever it is then all of a sudden now you're laughing because this idiot is in a circus with a clown's nose on <laughs> and it's amazing that you only have to do it for a short period of time in order to change yeah. Such a deep, deep feeling, memory, everything. It's just amazing that that can happen. Yeah, there's a lot of tools out there. I think if I would share with anybody that's listening that you don't have to stay wherever you are. Like if, some, if you're not happy, if you have anxiety, if you've got fear, if you're kind of on the merry-go-round of autopilot over and over again, there are a ton of tools out there. Like when I was coming up, we didn't have the internet. Counseling was poo-poo, right? We, nobody went to counseling. But nowadays, it's just an internet search away to, to research and find and get in groups of how do I overcome being raised by alcoholic parents? How do I move past trauma? And just being willing to see what's possible what could be changed. I think once I got over that big fear that I had to control it myself in order to feel safe, and once I allowed the process, like and really learned to not be so scared of what could happen and get on, once I, once I started doing that and learning these different tools, like it just, my life continues to, to get better and better and better and better and better. I mean, it's, I can't encourage people strongly enough to break free of the chains that bind them, the mental chains, right, that bind yeah. them. Because I, mean, I could have made a different choice, right? I could have made a choice to be an alcoholic or an addict, or I could have made a choice to stay in an abusive marriage. But I just knew that there was something better out there. I wanted something more for my life and I fought for it. And I would encourage anybody to fight. It's not a physical fight. It's a, perhaps it is, right? If you have to defend yourself physically, but it is, it is a game of mental toughness really at the end of the day, getting out of your own way sometimes, getting out of your stuckness, getting out of your stubbornness, your resistance and and being open and willing to see something else i love that and i can see that you must be a super strong lady because you've left it behind you've done all of this study and what's your life like now i i have gone from uh, living a life of fear and scarcity to stepping into my power stepping into my courage trusting myself not doubting myself to the degree that I used to. I just embarked on a business. If I want to move somewhere, I'm just like, I'm in the process of selling my house. There's just so much more possibility now for me, but I'm currently single and just loving life. Even, even this COVID thing, I mean, it's an opportunity. There have been moments when there's been this quiet desperation, missing the connection with other people in ways that we're used to, right? Yeah. But I, I just think that it's a beautiful opportunity to reinvent ourselves and explore, you know, what, what else there might be out there. How can, we, how can we have an incredible life right now being under a COVID experience? Yeah. Apart from therapy, are there any other healing mindfulness practices that you use regularly? Yeah. So there are tools that I've learned and have incorporated through a training program that I've gone through. It's in Columbus, Ohio, where I happen to live right now. It's called Next Level Trainings. They do virtual training 
but it's really, it's, it's transformation. There are other people that do very similar work. Michael Strasner, Chris Lee are two trainers that have been doing this training for over 30 years. And so they take people through an experience to help, help them realize where the blind spots are of how they're showing up with themselves and other people and and really being able to move past that like to to, to be able to be self-aware and then there are tools that we have learned who have taken the training to be able to we call it shift into uh, just a different way of thinking about it not being a victim to it but as far as like other tools if someone uh, suffers from anxiety and if they start to have panic attacks there's a new technique that i learned called the havening technique it's where you i don't know if, you, if you've heard of this but it's where you rub your arms gently it does something to the delta part of your brain brainwave and you can rub your hands i'm demonstrating it i don't know how to describe it but if someone were to look up the havening h-a-v-e-n havening technique if the anxiety is perking up and if i do those couple of things it definitely it's like a it's like a wusa you know with your ears like the karate kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i love that um, another another thing that's really awesome are affirmation statements so if you're someone who has struggled with negativity or negative self-talk just having a mantra that you say every day i think also can be very supportive it's not an immediate fix or cure but it, it's something that over time you begin to see the glasses not just half full but it's overflowing instead of half empty <laughs> another thing i would say is to not be around people and I know this is easier said than done, but not put yourself around people that do not lift you up and hold you to your highest potential. I think that when we do that, it just perpetuates this downward spiral into despair and not getting out of that. And if you've only been around people in your life that are Debbie Downers or critical of you or it's the they show not, you know, it's like you might as well be invisible to, to everybody kind of thing. There are so many people out there that are loving and kind and generous and supportive and will be your biggest cheerleaders to help you get past the negativity that you've experienced. They're out there. I, I want people to know that they're out there and just to stand in possibility for that and that they can overcome with some effort, with a decision on their part and with some effort on their part, they can overcome anything, any, any situation. And life is pretty good and not just pretty good, but it's pretty great if you allow yourself to experience that. Yeah, I love that. That's so important, isn't it? Just to surround yourself with people who just want to give you love and understanding. It's pretty basic, yeah. isn't it? And something yeah. we all deserve, I think. What do you think are the the main things that we should give to our kids growing up? Yeah, that's a good question because when I I had my kids young and I inadvertently 
brought some of the negativity from my childhood to them. And so I would say that the best, one of the best things you can do for your kids is that you be okay. That I just got goosebumps when I said that. If you are, you know, if you've dealt with your, whatever the family of origin stuff is, no, please know that everyone's got their family of origin stuff, right? I don't think anybody, you know, we we may think that we're the only one that goes through something, but know that everyone's got their stuff. And if we deal with our stuff sooner rather than later and have the courage to do that, then that's the biggest gift that you can ever give your kid. And if you not try to control every everything, that you allow, allow your kids to not be perfect and not try to make them into something that you think they should be. That unconditional love, I think is, I wish I had have learned to unconditionally love sooner. Oh, I love that. Absolutely love both of those things. They're so important because that's breaking the cycle, isn't it? If you can be okay and you you figured it all out and it takes time and when you were having your kids, you were still a baby really. So it takes a long time and sometimes we can get to the end of our life and we haven't figured it all out. So I think it's a journey and it's definitely something that we should all strive for is to to be in a good place when we have our own kids so that we can give them the best. Tell me about your girl tribe, Fit, Fun and Sexy After 40. This is your new business. Please tell us about that. <laughs> oh, thanks for asking. Oh, I'm, I'm like so excited about this. So, you know, you spend years giving to everybody, you know, you're a spouse, you're a mom, you're an employee or a business owner, and you're always like, focused out and then it seems like there's never enough energy or time that we give to ourselves at the end of the day or to do the things to support us around our fitness and making time to exercise and making time to meal prep and loving ourselves, you know, this unconditional love, right? Uh, for ourselves. And so I had struggled over the years with weight gain and family of origin training and the emotional stuff. And so I finally took myself on and I've lost over 50 pounds and five wow. dress sizes and have kept it off. Wow. And what I realized was that, I mean, just my own personal transformation emotionally and the confidence uh, that resulted from that, having that achievement and how energetically I just felt so much better. And I mean, it just changed in so many ways my life. And of course, all of a sudden now being single, like men are like, hey, you know, and <laughs> so, yeah, yes. okay, Yay. sure. <laughs> yeah, let's go out for dinner. So anyways, it was through my girlfriends that they they were so supportive of this girl tribe. We would meet every day and, and walk and, and we, would, we were on this journey together for our own health and wellness. And I just treasured the moments that I had with them and it was so fun and and silly and we would take pictures of just the most randomest things you know including a unicorn a full-size full unicorn on someone's porch and every every day we would stop there and take a selfie you know pretty much anytime we went on that path so just crazy silly fun and and achieving our fitness goals and got super close even closer and so 
I decided that because of this, and I'm basically, and with my background in coaching, I had been a career coach for a number of years. And then this work that I've done in transformation, that really I'm a healthy lifestyle mindset coach and I support people on their journeys to achieve their fitness goals. So I provide accountability through private coaching and also through a group where we're in it together and dreaming, what do we want to achieve, you know, with our fitness goals? And not everyone needs to lose 50 pounds. I've worked with someone who actually was amazing. Their fitness, they, I mean, they're like a model and very slim and trim, but they wanted to quit drinking and smoking. And so I've worked with them on that health goal. So yeah, so I have a program that's starting soon. And so happy to share the link. I do have a, a free handout, seven key steps to living a healthy lifestyle. And so I'm happy to share that with anyone that would like to uh, receive that. Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm actually, I decided that next year I'm going to train for the Camino de Santiago walk in Spain wow. if they open everything up. So I'm going to be training to walk 450 miles in 45 days. Oh my gosh, that's a walk. That is a walk. My gosh. Wow. I have never heard of that. I haven't heard of that walk before. That's amazing. Goodness. Yeah, it's a, it's a pilgrimage. And so everyone, uh, the disciples met in Santiago in Spain. And so it's a very famous, I didn't know about it either until just recently. And a friend of mine completed the walk. And so I thought, wow, that would be an amazing goal to set and achieve. And so I'm uh, going to ramp up and do the training for that. Wonderful. Good on you. That's amazing. I love that. So <laughs> tell us where we can find you on Instagram or do you have a website? Yeah, people can find me on Instagram right now. It's Girl Tribe Fit, Fun and Sexy. Awesome. Leslie, thank you so much for chatting to us today. I've loved hearing your story and I feel oh, quite emotional at the moment listening to all of the things that you've done and your healing journey and everything that you've achieved. I just think you're awesome. Oh, Donna, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. You are impacting generations to come uh, because of this work that you're doing. And so I just want to acknowledge you for, for doing this and allowing me to share my story. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way? by hearing this episode, please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.